welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. This season of the podcast is produced by The Future of Truth, a project based at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, which explores what truth is, where it's going, and why it matters in democracy. The project is made possible by generous funding from the University of Connecticut and from the Henry Luce Foundation. The podcast features discussions with publicly minded thinkers about the cultural and political role of concepts like truth, fact, evidence, and information. Today, my guest is Katrina McKinnon. Katrina is professor of political theory at the University of Exeter. Her research is focused on climate ethics and environmental justice. Most recently, Katrina has been investigating the intergenerational dimensions of the climate crisis. I invited her on the program today to discuss issues concerning climate change denial and what it is and what can be done to counteract it. Hello, Katrina. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you today? I'm not bad, thank you. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me uh, for the podcast. I'm looking forward to it. Fabulous. So why don't we start, you know, with the big picture, right? Yep. <laughs> you know, yep. uh, what is climate denial? Um, is it uh, is it just a, a perverted or exaggerated form of what might otherwise be sort of healthy, sort of non-deferential, skeptical attitudes? Or is there something more cynical or sinister uh, wrapped into it? Okay, um, so that's a good place to start. I think the latter. Um, so certainly the, the climate denial that I am interested in and that I, I think your listeners for this second season are probably interested in is um, the deliberate and deceptive misrepresentation of the scientific realities of climate change. So it's a form of deception, right, um, which is very different from the kind of healthy disciplinary um, disagreement that we often get right at the boundaries in particular of disciplines that's just part and parcel of the contestation that, that is right at the heart of good science and is necessary for us to um, have good, thorough evidence bases for our um, policy making, right? So climate denial, I think as a term, is, is sometimes used in a number of different it's different ways, right? And and some instances of climate denial, I think, or what called climate denial, probably are not of much interest from the point of view of um, political philosophy and ethics. So you know the, the 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 you know the cranky uncle who you know at every family dinner has a rant about uh, you know the the climate hoax or um, uh, how climate change isn't real. Um, I, I really don't think, um, from a, a political point of view, there's, there's there's much to say there, other than, you know, we should talk to our cranky uncles, um, listen to what they have to say, and try and convince them that they're wrong about, about climate science. So I think that's something that, it, you know, that kind of, um, it's, it's almost kind of ignorance, uh, I think, is it, not uh, particularly politically problematic. Um, and neither is this sometimes climate denial, where it's almost a sort of, psychological um, defense mechanism, um, uh, almost if you like it, sort of aspects of grief about the climate crisis. I think that can manifest in a sort of refusal to look at the realities of, of climate change. And, and again, I think, that's, uh, I think that's a problem, but, uh, but I don't think, um, it's certainly not what I mean when I talk about climate denial. 
um, which instead has this very sort of deliberate, intentional, um, directed, and deceptive character. I see. So in this case, then, what we're what we might call climate um, denial um, is a um, you know is is not primarily, at least as you've just described it, the um, a, a, a description of the attitudes or beliefs or commitments of particular individuals who are disposed to say, you know, climate change is a hoax or uh, you, you associate the the idea of climate denial with um, a kind of deliberate and we should say pernicious sort of political and social endeavor on the part <laughs> of somebody or something yeah. uh, to implant or to um, encourage uh, those kinds of attitudes in individuals. Would that be right? That's absolutely right. So I, I think that um, climate denial um, and the, the epicenter of, of, of this really is in the U.S. Um, is a form of propaganda, right, for the fossil fuel industry. So there's a whole uh, set of uh, the ecosystem of conservative uh, think tanks in the U.S. So uh, people like Americans for Prosperity, the Heartland Institute, uh, to some degree the Cato Institute, um, who are conduits for um, money which flows from um, uh, fossil fuel multinationals um, uh, and fund um, this form of propaganda, which is undertaken in a variety of ways. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole kind of uh, set of well-recognized techniques that people who um, are public facing and based in these these, these places these think tanks use to, as you said, try and influence you know the average person in such a way as to make them, uh, you know, in the most extreme cases, think that climate change is a hoax, or at the very least to sort of create a degree of doubt in their minds about the sort of veracity of the climate science. Mm -hmm. um, so should I, I mean, I can, this is some of the techniques that they would use. So, and, and this is very well documented. Um, there's a whole bunch of really good, um, trustworthy places you can, you can, you can find the sort of evidence for this. So, Bismarck's blog, Skeptical Science, Greenpeace, these have really good, uh, there's really good places to go find the data on this, the evidence. So, there's, uh, uh, uh cherry picking the data. So, a very well worn technique of only picking out particular studies or particular bits of data very often are outliers or have some problems with their methods um, to um, sort of shore up claims that, you know, climate denial, that climate change isn't happening or it isn't anthropogenic or that there isn't a scientific consensus, etc. Um, another um, dimension of um, denial um, that, that, that comes out of these think tanks is the accusation um, but there's a, a global conspiracy, a conspiracy of climate scientists, right, who are sort of propagating, uh, propagating this, this myth of, of, of climate change, of, of uh, human-caused climate change. Um, and we saw that very clearly in the um, so-called climate gate um, affair in which a bunch of emails were stolen from uh, scientists, climate scientists at the University of East Anglia. Um, uh, and then the, the scientists themselves were exonerated in multiple investigations into this, but nevertheless, the, the, um, uh, that particular affair, the climate gate affair, has succeeded in planting that seed of doubt in people's minds about, you know, are the scientists all, you know, behind the curtain uh, in a global right. conspiracy to fool all of us? 
Um, appeal to take experts, so that's very common. You get people who have no training whatsoever, no expertise whatsoever in climate science popping up on Fox News to debate legitimate real climate scientists. Um, uh, you know, I mean, even at the most, at the most blunt end of it is outright deception, right? So the, the, the scandal around um, what Exxon knew about climate change, when they knew it, and what they did to cover it up, I think falls in that category. So there was a hashtag Exxon New, um, which is now shorthand. It's almost like the poster child of corporate climate denial. Uh, and the evidence suggests that they knew way back in the early 80s that um, uh, that greenhouse gases um, and fossil fuel extraction was causing climate change, and yet yet they covered this up um, in order to protect their um, uh, uh, their, um, their profits, essentially. And there's a very famous, there's a, there's a quote from um, a memo that, that, that went around uh, internally at Exxon at the time, which I think sums up exactly what this corporately funded um, climate denial aims at. And the, the quote from that memo is very short. And it says that the victory will be achieved when the average person is uncertain about climate science. And that's sort of explicit in, in, in the strategy of, of corporate climate denial. Right, right. Can I ask you just, I know this would be speculative, but um, I, I was uh, curious about, um, so the way you uh, just a moment ago disambiguated sort of climate denial in the sense of a psychological uh, defense uh, strategy that individuals might adopt as a way of sort of coping with uh, um you know, what's pretty terrifying, you know, facts that are pretty terrifying. Uh, and then climate denial in the sense, um, in the proper sense, the central sense that you're concerned mm -hmm. with, which is this deliberate, deceptive, you know, this this campaign to yeah. make the average citizen unsure uh, what yeah. to think. Uh, I just wonder if, um, again, a little speculation is okay. I just wonder if um, uh, the ease, it seems to me, with which some of these techniques um, that I should say, you know, you can, you can find these techniques deployed across all kinds of uh, issues mm. where it matters what, what people yeah. in large numbers think, you know, the ease with which um, uh, these techniques succeed. Um, yeah. I wonder if there isn't some, you know, the, some um, way in which the, the, the bleakness psychologically of the reality doesn't make a, you know, doesn't play on some of our, you know, vulnerabilities and biases for wishful thinking, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, ostrich sticking our head in our sand sort of stuff. Uh, you know, I just wonder if that's not part of the part of the story. It's a pernicious, you know, misinformation and influence campaign, but maybe there's an additional sort of moral, um, uh, uh, you know, something that there's an additional moral uh, uh, badness about it because it is also aiming at a kind of uh, vulnerability in people. Yes. Do you think that that might be right? I think that's absolutely true. Um, I, I think it's, um, you know, deeply pernicious and um, exploits exactly those kinds of, you know, let's face it, natural human impulses to, to not look at the climate crisis straight on. I mean, it's truly awful. Um, uh, the state that we're in, um, and I, I think uh, you know, if you if you look back, if you look kind of into the history of climate denial, and Noni Oreskes has done a, a wonderful job on 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 this for all of us. You know, this this kind of activity has its roots 
in uh, the propaganda techniques that Big Tobacco used way back in the 70s, right, when they were under um, legal and political scrutiny. And in, in some cases, it's exactly the same people, actually, who were, um, you know, the propagandists for Big Tobacco have just kind of stepped into that role for, 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 um, uh, for the fossil fuel um, multinationals. And these are, you know, the techniques are, you know, these are very trained, very PR savvy, very slick um, groups of people who know exactly how to exploit those psychological, um, I mean, I wouldn't even call them weaknesses. They're just features of, 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 of you know, human beings in times of trouble. Um, so I think that's an additional, um, uh, you know, sure, that's an additional um, sort of dimension of, of moral um, outrage, actually, that we should have about this. And I think it's worth saying as well that, that you know, I, I think it would be a mistake to think that, that, you know, there are some types of people who are particularly vulnerable to this kind of attack and propaganda, whereas there are other types of people, um, who, you know, who know much better and would never fall for this. Like, I think we're all vulnerable um, um, to, um, um, to this kind of attack, which is essentially, essentially what it is. Insofar as it's difficult for all of us to judge the trustworthiness of um, experts in different domains in which we know about which we know very little, right? So I think we need to, um, if there's a sort of impulse to judge or, you know, kind of look down on um, those ridiculous people who, you know, got tricked by um, climate um, denial propaganda, I think we really need to resist that impulse. Um, I think it's really not that simple. Right, right. Fabulous. So, you know, this makes a nice segue into the, um, uh, the next question I wanted to to raise with you. So, you know, a common way of thinking about um, climate denialism um, is to sort of wrap it into, to build it into sort of broader tendencies towards um, conspiracy theorizing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for an earlier episode this season, I had um, uh, the philosopher Kasim Kassam uh, on talking yeah. about conspiracy theories. Um, and so, you know, it's not uncommon to hear people talk about climate denialism alongside, right, in the States, for example, you know, well-known sort of broad, broadly speaking now, conspiracy theories, QAnon conspiracy theory types, you know, um, that climate denialism is part of a, a broader set of you know, um, uh, political intrigue stories that ultimately involve, you know, you know, um, child sex trafficking out of basements yeah. and, you know, yeah. <laughs> pizzerias in DC that have no basements and all this. Um, so, you know, but you resist that, that, that kind of framing you're apprehensive about the, the framing that puts climate denialism just as an element within broader conspiratorial thinking. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why you're apprehensive about that? Yeah, I, th- I think um, I'm, I'm in part apprehensive about that because of because of where it leads you. So I think if that's the only, if, or if that's the dominant frame that you use for thinking about climate denial, the, the kind of responsibility and the problem ends up lying with the individuals who've got themselves caught up in these conspiracy theories, right? So, so the kind of um, the problem lies at the at the at the at the level of individuals, and that provides an excellent smokescreen. Um, uh, exactly what, you know, um, uh, the, these right-wing uh, think tanks and uh, 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 propagandists with fossil fuel interests want, right? You know, the sort of pushing, um, the, the, the um, making the domain of responsibility entirely populated 
by individuals, right, with respect to climate change. Um, so Michael Mann, um, who's a very um, prominent U.S. climate scientist um, and, and really has taken on these climate deniers um, uh, front and center, has been saying, that in, I think I do agree with him on this, that there is this sort of individualization of the narrative around, you know, responsibility for climate change and where the duty to act lies. Right, that making it about individual duties and nothing but individual duties. That you know, if only we all kind of you know went vegan, or if only we all um, stopped flying as individuals, then then you know we sort the climate problem out. I mean, there's obviously some truth to that, but I think we need to see that in the context of how that serves the interest and enables um, uh, uh, you know feeds into the kind of propaganda machine of climate denial. Um, that is being continuously funded by the fossil fuel industry, right? It's very convenient for them to um, have us as individuals think that we're the problem, right? And sort of turn our gaze inward rather than actually looking at the very skilled, very deliberate and very targeted techniques that they have employed against us as individuals to throw sand in the wheels of, of climate mitigation. So I think there's a risk that I, I don't want to sort of denigrate the, the, the conspiracy theory framing because I think there is clearly a, a sort of, you know, there's empirical data on this, but there is a sort of, we're living in a, in a new age of conspiracy theories and there's, you know, that coincides with populist politics and, uh, you know, a lack of trust in experts, et cetera, et cetera. But I think time, there's the story behind climate denial of propaganda. And we have to keep really clear sight of that and always ask ourselves, well, you know, what narrative is actually serving the interests of fossil fuel um, multinationals um, uh, here? And that individualization is one of them, I think. Right. And so one follow up on that, um, just to connect up with something that you said a moment, uh, you know, a, a, a little um, a little earlier. Um, do you think that um, in a, you know, in an odd way, perhaps, maybe it's not so odd, that the focus on individuals and the, you know, the inter, you know, the, the, the sort of disagreements between, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the, what we sometimes in the States still call the fact-based community and, um, you know, individuals who are climate deniers, you think that that, that framing, but as the, the debate between different kinds of people or different groups of people, each of whom sees the other as benighted and ignorant or naive, does that, I wonder if that itself doesn't help the propaganda effort, right? If, as the Exxon uh, memo that you cited says, the the whole game for the propagandist is to create uncertainty and doubt. And I wonder if there's just sort of the, the, the keeping the debate at the level of the individuals who can all smugly dismiss one another as, as naive and foolish doesn't in fact contribute to the propaganda effort. I think, I think it does. I think that's spot on. And I think that is also borne out in um, survey evidence for so the Pew Center, um, uh, um, uh, did some survey work, and I think it was last year or the year before, it was relatively recently. And it's striking in the U.S. context how the divide about, um, um, climate change, as in, uh, you know, trusting scientists, thinking there's a problem, thinking it's human cause, et cetera, um, thinking that the action on mitigation is going to be overall beneficial or, or overall harmful. That that maps almost, you know, strikingly across partisan political lines, right? So it has been, it has become in the U.S. Um, 
such a politicised issue, the issue of climate change, right? It's kind of become part of your identity, the political identity of Republicans and Democrats. Um, in a way that I think for, in, in other parts of the world, I think that's, that's just quite alien and confusing. Um, because certainly, I mean, here in the UK, I, I, I mean, there's a little bit of that, but it, but it really isn't, I mean, it's across all um, political parties, a commitment to, you know, taking action on climate change, whether or not that actually happens. At least it's the language and the, the kind of consensus on there being a problem and our need to do something about it, it's universal. Right? There's no political party that, that right. denies that. But in the US, I, I think you're right. I think the way in which this has been framed by a lot of these conservative think tanks about as an issue around, you know, uh, liberty and freedom, as an issue about, um, uh, you know, American interests as against, uh, 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 yeah, you know, the interests of, um, uh, you know, other parts of the world or, you know, the, the sort of the, the murky UN system, which is often accused as, as, as being part of a global conspiracy by, um, by, these, by these think tanks. I think that all feeds into this sort of um, partisan um, framing, politically partisan framing of, of, of climate as, a, as an issue, as a policy issue in the U.S. context, which has, as, as you just said, I think is, is, is another sort of means by which progress on climate change in the U.S. has been has been slowed down, and consequently in the world, actually, you know, this, you know, the U.S. is clearly a major player in, um, and thank God, back in Paris Agreement. Um, uh, but you know, the aim of, of climate denial is not to sort of stop. Mitigation per se, I think the fossil fuel industry knows full well that um, you know their days are not days are numbered. The aim is to eat out as much time as they can in order to extract as much as they can and maximise profit. Right, so it's just it's to slow down as much as possible mitigation efforts. Um, right. I think we've moved well beyond the days when climate denial was about saying, oh, it's not happening. Right, that right. that that's not where the action is for climate denial. Now they're a lot more sophisticated than that. Right, right. So that's a nice segue then into um, uh, a third question that I wanted to to press with you uh, in the time that we have left. Um, you know, so what can be done about climate denialism? I mean, you, you know, I'm not asking what can be done about climate change. <laughs> that's yeah. a different. <laughs> what can be done about climate denialism? That that's a good question. Um, uh, I, I mean, a sort of dark thought, dark precursor to the answer to that question might be um, that actually, even if we if we could find some effective and um, justified action to take against climate deniers, that that, that you know maybe actually um, it's already in a sense too late because the the window for effective mitigation has is it, almost you know closed on us on us now. But I'll, I'll put that thought to one side. Um, uh, yeah, let, let's not go there. Um, so, I mean, I think there's, there's a number of ways you can come at this, right? So, so in some of my work, I have tried to use the, the sort of lens of the many powerful um, liberal arguments for freedom of speech as a requirement of toleration to try and um, analyze um, or think about whether we would be justified in banning climate denial, right? And it's a separate question about how we would do that and what that would mean. But whether in principle, um, climate denial, as we've been talking about it, lies within the scope of um, protection given by freedom of expression, freedom of expression and speech, or whether it lies beyond the scope of that protection. Um, so 
I think that there are so my I, I should just say as a kind of aside here, my interest in um in climate denial is it sort of rose out of much earlier work I did in the Holocaust denial and whether we should tolerate Holocaust denial as a phenomenon and, and, and there are many jurisdictions, many countries in which that, that is not tolerated uh, to Germany, Israel, etc. Um, so I wondered whether actually could we can we look at can we use the same framework to think about climate denial and think about the level of principle, whether it is the kind of speech and expression which ought to get the protection afforded by these um, powerful liberal um, arguments. Mm -hmm. um, and where I kind of end up on that on that question is I, I think is, is is trying to think about the the most clear cut cases in which we think instances of speech ought not to be protected in the name of toleration. So if you um, bring to mind um, the famous uh, statement by Justice Holmes in the uh, Supreme Court case in 1919, I think it was, so he said the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man falsely shouting fire in a theatre and causing a panic. And John Stuart Mill said the same thing in On Liberty about the angry mob outside the corn dealer's house that no defense of freedom of expression would um, um, uh, would permit the angry mob to um, to do what it's doing, and so in, in the work I've done on this, I've tried to think about whether climate denial is, you know, the cases of sort of corporate propagandist climate denial that we've been talking about, is like the man in the in the theatre who falsely shouts fire, right? Um, so I, I think it was, I think the idea has some legs insofar as it's clear. So the way I cast it in the work I've done is that, um, you know, we've got a crowded theatre, there are people in the theatre, there's no exit, a fire has started, the fire being climate change, and um, there are lots of very persuasive and loud people shouting that there was no fire, so that's climate deniers, and then there are lots of calm and measured people trying to convince um, those in the audience that there is in fact a fire and they need to do something about it using kind of logic and evidence and arguments um, and, and uh, being calm about it, those are the scientists. Um, and so the question is, well, in that case, um, will, are we permitted to um, shut down the speech of those who are shouting that there are no, um, there is no fire? And I think, I think, I think there are two key challenges there in making that case. Um, the first is to show um, that there is a causal connection um, between um, climate denial and the, the, the failure of um, effective action on mitigation or the slowing down of effective climate policy to quickly address the climate crisis. And I think that's quite a, you know, you would need to be able to make that, that case pretty thoroughly in order for this model of the fire um, uh, the man shouts, the coffee shouts and fire in the theatre to apply to the case of climate denial, I think. And secondly, I think you would have to show that um, if, if, if we're considering, you know, shutting down climate denial as, as, as speech, you know, in terms of a legal ban of some sort, you would have to show that there's really no alternative, right? That, that we're in an emergency situation and there was no other way in which we can prevent that emergency from accelerating um, uh, off the back of the speech of climate deniers. Um, and that takes you to the question, I think, of um, scientific literacy, um, the how 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 well scientists are trained, climate scientists are trained to communicate climate change to members of the lay public. Um, and if we think that the climate crisis is such that there is not enough time for us 
to socially um, get our act together on that sort of uh, communication domain, um, then I think the question of a legal ban should be a live one on, on the table. Uh, but I think a lot more work needs to be done here, right? I think a lot more, um, especially on the kind of no alternative um, question, right? The question of, you know, can the way in which private scientists communicate this stuff um, get itself together, get itself in shape so that it's capable of, of really acting as an effective um, counter speech to the speech of climate deniers, which, you know, to be honest, at the moment, it's just failing to do. Um, so I don't make the case in the work I've done that we should legally ban climate, corporate climate denial, um, but I try and kind of scope out what we, what would have to be the case if we were to take that, that proposal for a legal ban seriously from a liberal point of view, given a commitment to toleration. Um, yeah, so that, that's where my thinking is. What do you think that scientists could do better? Um, you know, I, I you know, there, <laughs> I, is that, the, is that the million dollar question? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that, I think scientists have a legitimate fear of coming across as political advocates, um, on the question of climate, especially in the U.S. context. Again, I think because climate deniers have very successfully made this into a political football, like they've made it a partisan issue. So the climate scientists in the US to, to say anything which 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 even hints at, you know, policy implications um, uh, immediately puts them, you know, embroils them in that, that kind of partisanship that they really, you know, from the point of view of their own careers, from the point of view of their standing as scientists, um, uh, you know, they understandably do not want to um, become embroiled on that. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, they're the ones with, you know, the expertise here and we need them to be able to communicate that in ways that, that, that are accessible to, uh, to non-experts. Um, maybe it's, you know, we look at how, how climate scientists are trained. Uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly how, <laughs> um, how that should be, be addressed. Um, and of course, it's not the duty of every climate scientist to do this, right? Some of them just want to, you know, sit in their lab and do what they do, and that's fine. Um, but a number of them, in fact, all climate scientists I know, are just horribly concerned about this. But at the same time, don't have the um, the kind of forums, the language, the 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 the, the technique, the support of their community um, to, um, to to sort of speak out in a way that would be fit to to um uh confront climate denial so i think that would need to change right well, um, Katrina, you've been very generous with your time. I want to um, I want to thank you uh, for joining us today uh, to talk about these really important issues and your wonderful work uh, uh, on the Why We Argue podcast. Thanks, Robert. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyable. Well, thank you, um, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You've been listening to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. I want to thank our podcast team. Toby Napolitano at the University of Merced handles our sound. Elizabeth Delazazara at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute is our communication director. And Jude Johnson uh, handles research for us at the University of Connecticut. The podcast, I'll remind you, is produced by the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute's The Future of Truth Project generous funding from University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. Thank you for listening and bye for now.